Welcome to another episode of Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Remember that you can email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from our listeners, and especially anyone who would like to be a guest on our show who's using business as a force for good. Today, on this episode, we have Val Emanuel with us in just a moment. She will tell us all about what she is up to. She's the founder of Riftcare. She's also the founder of Role Models Management. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. As I went walking that ribbon the highway, I saw Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and today our guest is Val Emanuel. She is the founder of Role Models Management and Riff Care. Hi, Val, and thanks for being on Heartstock. Thank you so much for having me. So, what is Riff Care? And I'm hoping we can kind of focus on that, but I know that you're also involved in the founder of Role Models Management. Can you kind of give our listeners a little intro here? Yeah, definitely. So I'm the co-founder of Role Models Management and also the co-founder of Riff Care. Riff Care is the newest project. We are making uh, feminine hygiene products, period care out of hemp fiber. And we're a first to market company doing that. And really the focus with, you know, everything that I've ever done has been sustainability. Um, with the talent agency, Role Models Management, we connect models and influencers with sustainable brands. And then as I was working with these sustainable brands, I realized that in the, you know, in the period product space, there was just still this, this disconnect with things being biodegradable and changes just hadn't been made in a very long time. So I had this idea to make period care with hemp fiber and it just launched last month, May, 2022. Amazing. That's so exciting. And first I'd like to talk about your personal journey, how did you decide that this was going to be your life project? What led to where you're at now? Oh my gosh, there's been so many (laughs) different journeys as you can imagine. Yes. When I was a kid, I was very entrepreneurial. I was always selling, you know, whatever I could get my hands on, mostly candy that I would cover in Kool-Aid or snacks or bag of chips. Um, And I got really into sustainability and activism when I was a teenager and I was modeling for a while and I just could not put the two together. And a lot of times I felt like I was sharing what I was doing on my own social media. My following wasn't huge. But when I got my agency, I realized that there was, you know, this reach now with millions of different people. And we always had the chance to use our platforms for good to sell products that could heal the earth or to sell products that were, you know, like not making the best, the best difference on our planet. And so I wanted to make sure that I could really mix a sustainable brand with Riff, make it sexy, make it just something that the world had really never seen before in period care. So that was the mission with, with starting the brand. And you mentioned that you got into sustainability early on in life. Were there influences or some aha moment that you had that made you realize this was very important? 
Yeah, definitely. I think my mom, and I don't consider her to be like a tree hugging, you know, typical, I don't sustainability expert, but growing up, my parents are from this country. My mom is from Panama. My dad was born in Antigua. And so we just saw waste differently. We didn't, you know, everything was secondhand. We didn't necessarily buy things and throw them away. We just had to think about everything in terms of, you know, if we're buying something, it's forever. And if we're getting something, we're not going to waste it. And we couldn't participate in consumer behavior, really, because we didn't have that much money. So I kind of kept that even when my family started, like, you know, buying more plastic things and throwing things away and buying new clothes. It always stuck with me. And my mom used to make us clean up the beach. And she actually did it to build character, I think. But I also, you know, she's from a country with some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And so whenever it rained, we would go down to the beach and all of the the trash from L.A. basically gets swept into the water through the storm drains. And so she would make us clean it up before school and we'd go to the park and we'd also clean the trash up at the park and feed the birds. And I have no idea why she did these things still, but <laughs> it just became ingrained in my personality. So you grew up all of your childhood in, in L.A., specifically on the beach? Yeah, in Los Angeles. And we've pretty much always been West Side and Inglewood and Culver City, but, you know, always been extremely beach-centric, my family. And have you seen things change? I mean, I've heard so many, especially surfers, talk about the early days of surfing and how much they've seen Oh, just pollutants and pollution in general and changes in the water and the beaches. Have you noticed anything for the good, for the better or for the worse? Yeah. You know, what's so crazy is the ocean's worse. There's more plastic. There's more pollution. You're seeing a lot of skincare wash up, right? Because skincare is kind of like fast fashion now. You're seeing clothing and shoes, but the air quality is better than when I was a kid. So it's like... You know, we made all these new rules for what corporations could do, the fuel they could use, truckers, all of these different things. But corporations can still pump out as much plastic as they want to. There's no regulations on it. And I mean, it is what it is. We all have free will, but I'm seeing far more trash on the beach than ever before. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your educational background Role models came first, is my understanding. How you got into that and what came before role models? So before role models, I actually was thinking that I was going to be a history teacher. I was going to San Francisco State University and then I went to Cal State University LA and I was studying, God, so much. I thought I was going to be a paleontologist. I went to live in Billy's for a summer and dig architectural ruins. I was like, maybe I'll be a docent. Maybe I'll be a librarian. Like I was trying to figure it out, but I definitely wanted to work in education. And honestly, I went to go work at a school and I felt like I was losing money being at the school. I'm just going to be real. We don't pay our teachers enough. And I felt really sad being like, I cannot afford to be a mom and also be a teacher. I live in Los Angeles. It was impossible. So, I mean, the agency didn't start because I needed money. Like, if you want to make money, don't start a business. You know what I mean? Like, you, it takes years <laughs> it's, to it's make It's a money. bit of a money hole to start, right? Exactly. <laughs> but I at least wanted to be in, in some type of control of, you know, the narrative. And I think with role models, it was all about being in control of the narrative. We wanted brands to be able to tell a sustainability story. And we wanted models to be able to talk about activism or politics or whatever it was without being dropped by their agency, because that 
it happens in Hollywood. Yeah, they want you to be a blank canvas for whatever film or movie or project you're working on. And we didn't see why you couldn't be both. Mm. And I would imagine that you finally graduated. You landed on a particular degree. Has that helped you in this journey? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't spend tons of money on my degree state schools, but I don't, you know what, I really do feel like my degrees helped me to maybe get more etiquette and be more articulate. I feel like, you know, I came from two parents who were very smart, but they didn't have a college education. And so with my college education, I really did use it to travel the world. And I'm going to be very real. I had to put myself around people who, who had money, who had PhDs, who had family, who had graduated college for generations because I think when you become an entrepreneur, you have to present yourself in a certain way. People have to trust you with their job security, with their money. And so I think that's what university did for me. And then let's go to Rift Care. What was that journey like when you decided that it wasn't going to be just role models, but that you were going to have another enterprise? Was that scary at first, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, a consumer brand versus a a company that does service-based business is so different. So when I had the idea that I wanted to start a consumer company, I didn't know what it was going to be. I didn't think Riff Care at first. I wanted to make reusable maxi pads. And then I was like, maybe I'll have a skincare line. And I ended up actually getting a job at Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's store in Brentwood. And I worked there for three months seasonally. I honestly just wanted to get out of the house because I had a relationship that I like wasn't quite happy in. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to get out of the house, do this, figure out what type of brand I want to start. I'm going to study all the different brands that are at Coop. And I still kept coming back to the reusable maxi pads. That was I was super into them at the time. So I studied the packaging of all the brands that were at Goop and who was doing things well and who was selling through and what do people like to be sold? I was just studying consumer behavior with luxury products. Um, And then I kind of settled on the fact that I wanted to do something that was more attainable. Reusables are fantastic for period care, but there is that first time investment that's more expensive than buying a pad or a tampon. So about a year later during, or a few months later during COVID, uh, when I realized I wanted to start the brand, I started emailing people and just realizing like, it's a high startup cost when you have a consumer brand. It sure is. So especially with, I mean, we had to do minimum order quantities of like hundreds of thousands. That was quite scary. But the first problem was that there was no one in the world who was making period care out of hemp fiber. So that was the first thing I, I started emailing people in 2020. I was like, I had this idea. And maybe for a month, I was like reaching out to factories, reaching out to suppliers and I couldn't find anyone. So then I kind of just dropped it because people were telling me it was impossible. And um, I picked, Don't you yeah, love that? Picked, yeah, yeah. It's a really great idea, but you'll never make it happen. That's, that's what I got from about, I mean, if I got, I emailed about a hundred people and I got about five responses, like, this is fantastic, but this is like 20 years into the future. Uh, you know, we can't process this X, Y, Z, all the excuses. So I dropped it. I dropped my dream and then picked it up a little bit over a year and a half later. So... For some folks, this is kind of a taboo subject that they just don't even want to talk about. Have you gotten any pushback? I mean, one of the things that I noticed 
working in the realm of, you know, women's fashion or women's products or women's consumer products, there's a certain amount of people who are just not going to get it, who are mostly men. I would imagine that a lot of the folks that you are depending upon to actually produce your product are men. Any pushback? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like people, if they understand that it's a new opportunity, they've been very excited. But there are a lot of people who are like, why don't you just, I mean, when I say people, I mean factories. They're like, why don't you just make cotton and like, have your cute branding and why do women need something different? This works, you know? And then I feel like in terms of investment, there's been a lot of men who've been very uncomfortable to talk about periods in general. So they haven't even wanted to start the conversation or maybe ask the right questions or like, oh, women's health is, I don't know anything about it. So we're just going to have to pass. Like we don't have anybody who can take this on, you know? Frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, for me, the most exciting part is the hemp. And, you know, I would really like to delve into that more deeply in the second half of the show. So in the meantime, how is it going now that you've launched? I mean, for you personally, I mean, this is a very exciting moment. Can you share with our listeners, what has that been like for you personally to get it off the ground here? Launching a company that you were told was impossible feels over the moon, especially because so I had the idea in 2020, but like I said, I dropped it when people told me it was impossible. When I picked it back up and I got my first investor and we started working on it, we got our prototype so quickly. It was just like, not only had everything I had in mind come to fruition, but it was also faster than like anyone had ever built it. And so I really have to thank my team, my co-founder, Rebecca, and my my team of brokers. Um, even two weeks before we launched, we got a call from Erewhon, which is one of the most influential grocers in the U.S. right now, saying that they wanted to carry our line in all of their stores. And so for us, it's like we're definitely seeing traction. We're now starting to get some some press who's realizing, hey, this isn't any other company. They're doing something that's never been done before. So I think it's not only rewarding, but I'm hoping that this traction that we're getting will we'll start to have consumers questioning like, why aren't other products biodegradable or what else can we make from hemp, you know? So many different uses of this fiber. And that's really what we want to start a conversation around is regenerative business and alternatives to cotton. So we're going to take our little break here and we shall be right back and talk a little bit more about hemp and why is hemp so exciting this is Heartstock, and we'll be right back with Val Emanuel, the co-founder or the founder. You have another founder that we're going to talk about here in just a moment of Rift Care. We'll be right back. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Thanks for tuning in. And today, we've been speaking with Val Emanuel. She's one of the founders of Rift Care. And I'm wondering, Val, how did you come up with the name Rift Care? 
we talked about the beach earlier and I actually originally wanted it to be called Reef. I wanted the brand to be called Reef because the beach, I wanted to take plastic out of the oceans and talk a little bit about doing my beach cleanup. I was so upset every time I was going to the beach and seeing tampons come out of the water. And so I was like, oh, Reef, we're going to do it for the ocean. It's going to be like an ocean-centric period care. And then I tried trademarking it and I could not. There was so many brands and things called Reef, even though it wasn't in the category, that it was just like impossible for the website and everything. So then I was like, oh, well, regeneration. I just kind of went through acronyms. So regenerative international female is what RIF stands for. Nice. Um, but that's the story of the name. <laughs> and let's get into this whole topic of hemp. How did you know that this was better than cotton? And we've talked about this before on the show, uh, the beauties of hemp. Let's share with them your take on that. I mean, there's so many uses for hemp and there's so much byproduct when you make all these things like CBD oil or hemp seed oil or hempcrete or any of the other industrial uses. So I learned about hemp, I think about eight years ago when my ex, he's super big into hemp. He does now fiber production for like H&M, Inditex, Levi's, Madewell, all these brands. And so he just talked about it as a superior fiber. And, you know, I learned a lot about cotton basically being a very unsustainable crop using more than a tenth of all of the world's pesticides between the millions of different things we grow to eat. Cotton still takes more than all of those things combined. It's insane. And so like, why are we, why are we doing this? And even organic cotton is super water intensive. And when you grow cotton, if you don't do it in the right way, it can basically make the land infertile for years. And so our product uses hemp and organically grown cotton that is actually grown regeneratively. So it's it's helping the soil rather than degrading the soil. But with hemp, it also is antimicrobial, which if you're using something, you know, during the time of your month and the, the most absorbent part in your body, that's super important. It also had a shorter growing season. Like every single reason that we could go through was just better and cotton only. And maybe one day we'll be making out of 100% cotton, but it was just softer to make it with hemp and cotton and make something that's even softer than like a 100% organic top sheet. So, I mean, I could go on and on about hemp. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's so inspiring to see many folks jumping on the hemp bandwagon. And like you said, we could go on and on about it, but not just period products, but textiles, bringing that back to the United States and being able to go from farm to fiber to the actual consumer good is really inspiring to me because we're not shipping things across country. So I guess that was part of my question too. You you mentioned that it is grown regeneratively. Is this being manufactured overseas or is it being made here in the U.S.? It is being manufactured overseas. And this is also one of the problems we have with the supply chain is when we reached out to some suppliers in the U.S., it was so difficult to get anyone to talk to us. And when we started talking to people in Asia and the Middle East, we realized that their governments had been investing in these things for a very, very long time and they saw the value in it. And the U.S. is still very far behind when it comes to factories and investment into companies who are climate fighters. So that's something that needs to be changed. Also, we found that when we went to Asia and the Middle East, people were willing to do research development with us. 
And not only were they willing to do research and development, they were able to take on the cost because their investors saw the value in it. And there was not a single person in the U.S. or even in Europe who saw the value in trying to make something new. And then you mentioned that you had found an investor. Can you share maybe with some fellow entrepreneurs how you managed to have success in that realm? Because we all know just how amazing that is and how challenging that is. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that we've not raised any outside capital, no institutional capital. It's all been friends and family. But so the first investor I found was just someone that I started talking to about the project. He was like this nice guy that I met and I'm talking to him and I'm like, I have this idea and he happens to work in finance. And he was like, that's amazing. And I bet that market's going to grow and I bet it's going to grow in that direction. And um, I started telling him more about the project and he said that he wanted to put money into it. And I was kind of shocked because I was like, I'm ready to go after it. As soon as somebody gives me money, I will do it. And as soon as I got that initial investment, I went, I mean, it was like in the beginning, just paying for like fiber and branding and different things like that. And then I decided I need to have more money to actually make the order because our first order was about $100,000. So then I went ahead and did a Kickstarter. But I think it was that first investor believing in me and just him, like, you know, investing in consumer brands in general and the firm that he was with. And I was like, okay. I know that if people believe in me, I can take their money and 10 exit, or I can take their money and show them physically something that I've done. Um, I knew that my team was capable of that. But I would say in the beginning, it's not really about asking people for money. It's more about telling people how amazing what you're doing is and having them feel so invested in your vision that they want to give you money. And so as I go into fundraising now, you know, because we're realizing like, wow, we're going to be out of stock by the end of the summer, which is so scary because we just launched in May, we're going to have to raise and produce much more. So I mean, I just want to tell the world what we're doing and kind of like see who comes to us and organically get those conversations growing from the traction that we have. And I'm wondering too, this was something that you mentioned briefly earlier on, but I think it's important that we touch on this. And that is how your product is tied to sexual wellness. This is a big topic, but let's go there. Let's really talk about how much, for for lack of a better word, shame, shame and embarrassment and just a hesitancy, like you said, for, especially I think for men too, to talk about this topic. Why is it so taboo and how is that impacting us as women and how are you changing that? Yeah, it's crazy. So the first product that we started off with was like a hemp oil-based lubricant. And I was going to the farmer's markets actually for two months before I started working on the pads. And I was selling the lube and I was like, at the farmer's market, everyone's selling food. I'm selling sex oil. And every (laughs) woman who came up to me, I just started conversations about sex and orgasms and how amazing this was, why I started to make it because after I had my child, you know, like things were different. And I started to realize that women were so, some women were extremely receptive. Some women were so uncomfortable. Some women like had shame and just ran away from the table. Like I just told them that I was going to, you know what I mean? Like slap them. It was crazy. Um, But I have always been very open talking about sex. And so, you know, we have our oil and then we have the pads, but we, we want to educate women, especially Gen Z, young women, menstruators, people in general, 
about sexual wellness in a way that I think, for example, Gwyneth Paltrow has been really good at. But there's still this whole generation of young people who are not being talked to about sex. So if we can start with something that's just the basis, right, the menstrual cycle, then we can start to open up conversations around hormone health, around around childbirth, around so many different things that we have, you know, like products that are going to be tied specifically to a certain topic. But I think if we can start to destigmatize periods, which a few brands have been working on and we're just trying to elaborate on even more, we can start to open up other conversations about sexual wellness. And why were you always so open? Is there something that helped make you that way? Or do you feel like you just kind of came to the world being free and ready to talk about sex? Oh, not really. I mean, I grew up, you know, my mom is super Catholic and like married my dad. That was the first and only man she'd ever been with. So definitely not. I had to figure it out on my own. I started having sex very early. And unfortunately, there was, there's not very good sex education. I'm saying this also as a former educator. I'm like, we're in the age of the internet. I didn't even have the internet. I just went to Planned Parenthood, got birth control, had it be a secret. When I had my period, I was always super embarrassed and hiding my pads and tampons and and whatever. We have a generation that's so open, but this is still a taboo subject. So how can we start to make a period brand A be sexy, B, talk about things like mental health and how that relates to sex, and also talk about safety and emotional wellness and and tie these things together because sexual wellness is 100% holistic. So we have maybe about three minutes left. Mm-hmm. Let's let's talk about what's ahead and where you see the brand going and your products going. I definitely see Riff growing in terms of being just more accessible. We have a lot of retailers that we're getting in, which is extremely exciting. But I also see us doing more on social media, like on our TikTok and our Instagram, starting to educate more and really just getting a community of women and people who have periods to start to talk more openly about what they're going through and what they really want from companies. Like, what do you want us to do? Instead of us just making things and and putting them out into the world, it's what are the needs of the people? Anything else that you'd like to share? We've got a few minutes left here. Let's talk about your co-founder and were you on this journey together from the very start or at what point uh, did you guys start founding the company together? Yeah. So my co-founder, Rebecca, with Riff Care, it's really interesting because she's my best friend. She's also from Venice. And I was doing the Kickstarter and she as literally in, emailed me. As in Venice Beach, California or Venice, Italy? Yeah. Venice Beach, California. <laughs> yeah, so that's where we met uh, when we were like teenagers. And she was like, you seem like you're having a hard time. I was having a hard time raising money on Kickstarter. I had a $50,000 goal. It's only at 20000 And she just came into this project like it was hers. I was probably four months into Rift. And I realized that she was completely invaluable. She'd also done sustainable research at UCSD. She was working as a biologist. I was like, I cannot pay someone to do what she's doing. I cannot pay someone to love this brand as much as she loves this brand. So in January, I asked her to be my co-founder. I feel like it's the smartest move I've ever made. She is there with me in the trenches. And I feel like also when you're out there and you're doing things alone, it can look bad if you're trying to raise money. It can look bad if you're trying to start new conversations. But if they see you have a team, people start to trust you, especially when they see that your team is as amazing as mine is. Yes. 
Yes, and it's easier to get and raise money. A lot of investors won't even consider it unless you have a strong partner. How might folks find you and learn more about what you're up to there? You can follow us at Care just to see what we're up to. If you like education and, and talks about sustainability and periods, and my personal TikTok and personal Instagram are at Malibu Mama. I like that. Thank you so much for being on Heartstock. I feel uplifted and inspired. I appreciate it. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm, indeed. And as always... We'll be back next week. See you then. Peace. This land was made for you and me. As I went walking. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. But on me